Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we go back into the Salt and Light storage and bring out some of our favorite conversations from early 2015. First, Father Robert Barron of Word on Fire has a new book about finding God in culture. And we meet singer-songwriter Mikey Needleman. In our second half hour, we speak about marriage and family from veteran marriage prep coordinators Deacon Eustace Boussolet and his wife Gloria. And we end the program with a featured chat with Brother Emile from the Taizé community. Let's begin now with Finding God in Culture. What can Superman the movie... Gran Torino, or a film like The Hobbit, teach us about the figure of Jesus. Well, since St. Paul, Christians have been finding the seeds of the word in culture and using these to lead people to the gospel. We can learn from this. And to help us, Father Robert Barron of Word on Fire Ministries has just published a book, Seeds of the Word, Finding God in the Culture. And to tell us all about it, I am now joined by Father Robert Barron. Father Barron, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Good to be on with you. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, good to have you. Good to talk to you again. So why why did you write this book? Why do we need this book? Well, I think, as you suggested there, going back to Paul and the Areopagus, um, yes. those that proclaim the gospel have always been interested in finding points of contact with the culture. It's one thing to come in and just announce the gospel uh, directly, baldly, but that often doesn't have much of an impact. Mm-hmm. But when you can find points of contact within the culture and say, hey, you know, I've noticed this about you, and the message I'm bringing is actually in line with that, or it completes that, or it fulfills it, that's a much more effective evangelical strategy. So, um, you know, Cardinal George used to say, you can't evangelize a culture you don't love. Right. If you're simply at war with a culture, you're not going to evangelize it. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of expressing love for the culture is to say, I can find seeds of the Word, and that's, as you say, the patristic idea, the semina verbi, yes. the seeds of the Word that, that are every place, and I can water those seeds, if you want, and let them grow into the faith. Now, is this as simple as just being an effective communicator and finding something no. that you can... No? No, because here, I think the difference is you need someone who has trained eyes and a trained mind, okay. and who knows what to look for. Uh-huh. I think someone who's really immersed in the Catholic tradition can say, oh, now I recognize the patterns. There's an analogous pattern in the culture, but see, I know that because I know the great pattern of Revelation. So I would say to do this work effectively, you've got to have a really good immersion in the great tradition, and then you can begin to see analogies. And okay. that's either. Okay, so, and, and is it the same as the, the idea of inculturation in that sense, that if we, to, to be able to evangelize a, a people that is from a different culture, we need to inculturate the mm-hmm. gospel message in that particular tradition or culture? Yeah, I'd say it's one face of it. It's one aspect of inculturation. Yeah. Uh, it's um, not so much the adaptation of the gospel to a culture, it's finding elements in a culture that are redolent of the gospel, that speak of the gospel, and provide, therefore, a basis for evangelization. And you're suggesting correctly that that's exactly how a lot of the great evangelists over the centuries have have acted, from Paul on, but come up now through the Francis Xavier's and the Matteo Ricci's and people like that. Yes. That was their strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, Think of um, Matteo Ricci, you know, operating within Chinese society, Mm -hmm. and uh, moving into the space of the intellectual leadership of that culture, 
looking all the time for analogies and points of contact. Uh, that's the same strategy we can use today. Right. Now, I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to imagine. I'm sure it's been always this way because every, every people at every time have had a culture. But it's easy for us now to think of popular culture in terms of movies, uh, you know, the, what's on the Twitter feeds, uh, all the irrelevant things or people would say are re irrelevant or, or useless. But those are the things that you're talking about, that we need to be uh, relating to movies, to music, to television shows, to what's happening in current affairs and politics, all those things that, are, that people are talking about. Absolutely. And if you're an evangelist, you have to do two things. I mean, you have to understand and articulate well the great Revelation tradition, and you have to know the culture you're trying to address. Right. And if you're one or the other, you're going to fail. And that's if you want... The first one's kind of a conservative extreme. The other one's a liberal extreme. Yeah. If you simply do the gospel without attaining the culture, or you simply do the culture without attaining the gospel, you've got two different forms of reductionism. Yeah. And neither one makes possible real evangelization. So it's a, it's a, a blending of horizons, to use that technical language, between the gospel and culture. Um, but looking for analogies. I always go back to... Picasso, someone asked Picasso, what's the key to your artistic you know, genius or your vision? And he said, I've got a knack for visual analogies. Okay. It's a very, very wise thing, you know, that uh, that line of a guitar reminds me of the curve in, in a woman's body, uh -huh. or that the way the eyes are on that person remind me of, you know, something in nature. And a lot of his paintings exploited those analogies, those points of contact, those family resemblances. That's what I'm trying to do in a book like this, is to watch a movie and say, maybe that the director wasn't even interested in Christianity, but there's a lot of analogies, visual, intellectual, and so on, between that movie and, and Christianity. And it will help people understand the prime analog of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And, and I and I would think that that Christianity is so. I mean, even though we some people might say that we live in a society that is antagonistic to Christianity, for example, but the the the, the, the Christianity is so steeped into our culture anyway yep. that all those elements yep. are there, w whether they're fragmented or not, but they're there. No, that's quite right, and that goes back to an image of, from a great teacher of mine, Robert Sokolowski, who said, around the time of let's say the Enlightenment and the Reformation, yeah, the integrated Catholic vision kind of exploded, it blew up. Uh -huh. But the pieces, as you say correctly, often distorted, but the pieces can be found everywhere. It's like the thing blew up and then the, the fragments right. landed. So if we can recognize them and not just condemn it, say, oh, what a terrible culture, say, no, see, that culture is filled with the fragments of a once-integrated Christianity. Yeah, And I'm trying to put that back together, or think of like a, a novel, let's say you have this big book, a big novel, like The Lord of the Rings or something, and uh -huh. the pages have all just kind of blown apart, and they've flown all over the place and landed here and there. And I pick up a, a fragment of Lord of the Rings and say, boy, it doesn't make a lot of sense, and what, is, what story is this part of? But yet it intrigues me enough to look for more of that story. Mm -hmm. And, and then the art of trying to piece back together again this now disparate, um, these now disparate pages that's kind of what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah, I, I love that image of, of the fragmented message. Um, can you give us yeah. an example, maybe pick, pick a film that, that you might maybe refer to in the book, and, and give us an example of how this, kind of, how, how this can work? Yeah, I think you mentioned at the outset uh, Gran Torino, yes. um, Clint Eastwood's movie, which I went into, 
I mean, I like Clint Eastwood's movies and went into just interested in this film about this, you know, grumpy yeah. old guy and no idea that it would be filled with what I think is the best analogy for redemption uh-huh. in modern film. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's a lot of Christ figures in contemporary film. There's yes. E.T. to uh, Harry uh, Potter. Andy Dufresne. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of Christ figures. But this very surprising one is Walt Kowalski, who's the main character of that movie, yeah. and who engages, we can't go to all the details, but engages in a great act of self-sacrificing redemptive love, uh-huh. which grants freedom to this young kid and deals with the sin that was oppressing him at the mm-hmm. same time. And you see with extraordinary clarity exactly how the Church Fathers articulated the cross, how the cross both disempowered the evil powers, and freed those who were in his grip by an act of self-emptying love. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a better analogy for it than that movie. Yeah, the, that's a good example. Now, one of the things that you do in the book is that you'll point out the analogy or, or, or the uh, teaching, if I can call it that, but mm-hmm. you also will point out where maybe the analogy falls short or where the... the like, I'm thinking of your, your, your explanation of Eat, Pray, Love and, oh, and how, you wish, how you wish that she had made different choices because that's really not the Catholic message. Yeah, you know, because the culture is a, is a you know, wide variety of different things. And yes, there are analogies to Christianity, and there's also deep distortions within it. So we would say the culture is fallen, because it's made up of all kinds of fallen people. Yes. And like, Eat, Pray, Love is a good example, because there's a moment in the beginning of that movie when the character played by Julie Roberts is in deep distress, uh-huh. and she utters a really beautiful prayer, very simple, with tears, a simple prayer of, help me, you know? Yes. But the path that she undertakes <laughs> that movie unfolds, I think, is, is a much less than helpful one. Right. And ends up with, a sort of worship of the self. Yeah. It ends up with an affirmation of the self as it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I certainly scored that movie as a uh, <laughs> distortion of the Christian thing. Right. So I, I'm not afraid to do that, and I think evangelists and apologists do that too. Right. You find the points of contact, and you say, no, this part of the culture is really at odds with uh, Christianity. Right, that's important. Now, not, uh, just to make it clear to our, our listeners, you're not only speaking up movies, you also talk about yeah. books and politics and even current yeah. events, so you're using the same type of idea, examples. Um, how is someone like, like, like me able to use this book? What is your hope for this book? Oh, I think, you know, I like to see people use it personally for their own information, edification, but I can yeah. also see... Teachers use a book like this. Okay. Um, and, you know, the articles are short. They're based on a kind of weekly column that I write. So they're maybe uh-huh. 900 words, maybe 1,000 words. They're short. Mm-hmm. So I could see a class, let's say, of high school students that could read through. I think most of them could understand these uh, essays. Or, you right. know, say in a, in a university setting, read one of these essays and make that the basis for your uh, class discussion. Right. They're short enough. They're, they're based upon things in the contemporary culture that most people would know. Um, so instead of just beginning, let's say, with a, a one of the complex texts of the tradition, begin with this, mm-hmm. and um, you know, use that as a basis for conversation. So I hope, I hope teachers, catechists, um, adult education uh, leaders could use a book like this. Absolutely, and homilists too. Yeah, real, homilists, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Real practical applications. Okay, so I'm very excited about this book, and I hope that our listeners have have heard enough that they will be excited too, and they can go. And, uh, and get their own copies. You remi- you've reminded me of this great quote by John Paul II, the go- that the gospel lives in conversation with culture. And mm-hmm. if the church holds back from culture, the gospel itself falls silent. 
And yeah, uh, that, right. that is so, uh, we shouldn't be afraid of, of culture. Um, thank you so much for writing the book and for sharing a little bit of, about it with us today, Father. You're quite welcome. God bless you. Father Robert Barron is an author, speaker, and theologian. He's also the rector at Mundelein Seminary and the founder of Word on Fire, a global Catholic media ministry. Father Barron is also the creator and host of the Catholicism series. His latest book, Seeds of the Word, Finding God in the Culture, is published by Word on Fire. You can learn more at their website, wordonfire.org. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Mikey Needleman, with We Give Them Back to You from his new album, Your Ways. All our hopes, all our fears, all our joys, all our tears, all the trials, the end and failure, all the days. Much better the moments of misery and the victories. We give them back to you, we give them back to you. Lay them at your feet now. We give them back to you, we give them back to you. Lay them at your feet now All the darkness All the light All the sadness All the smiles All the tests that Show our weakness All the love Leaves us speechless That was Mikey Needleman with We Give Them Back to You from his new album, Your Ways. Mikey Needleman has been performing for many, many, many years, but the Mikey Needleman Band has been performing since 2006, and they do it all. Pubs, arenas, churches, wedding receptions, TV, radio. And the band with Mikey have a new album, Your Ways. And to tell us more, I am now joined by Mikey Needleman. Mikey, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Hey, thank you for having me. So I always ask, always start off, uh, off by asking the same question. Uh, tell me a, b- a b- bit about you. Tell me what it was like to grow up in the Needleman household. Oh, great. Thank you for asking that question. Uh, it was great. I, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Overland Park, Kansas, which is just south of Kansas City, Kansas. And yeah. uh, very Catholic family. I have uh, two sisters. And um, 
and yeah, we uh, we grew up very uh, very fortunate to have two loving parents that uh, that raised us very well in the faith, and um, went through Catholic schools my pretty much my whole life until college, and kind of really discovered my own personal faith uh, toward towards later years of my high school, and uh, at the same time, I was kind of learning how to play different instruments, different styles of music and whatnot, right. and the, the two kind of merged together. So was it was it a musical household? You know, my dad uh, played music, and he kind of introduced me uh, to that. My older sister was a singer. Uh, my mother and my younger sister really weren't into music, but uh-huh. it kind of worked out because we needed people to listen, so that kind of worked. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Of course, you need you need an audience. Um, yeah. Did you play with your dad at all? Yeah, all the time. You know, it's funny. We were really into baseball, but when the weather was either cold or um, or rainy, we couldn't go out and play catch. We would we would have little jam sessions. You know, right. I'd, I'd, I'd say, "Hey, Dad, you know, let's play some let's play some music," and we'd always play blues because that was kind of the easiest of kind of thing for yeah. us both to jam together with. But yeah. Um, but yeah, we, my dad and I, we used to collaborate all the time on different projects. So right. very, very lucky that yeah. I had that opportunity. It sounds like it. So when you were growing up and you were learning all these instruments, is that how, what was, what was happening in your faith life? Cause I presume you were probably a regular teenager, but at some point you said that something kind of started gelling together in terms of your faith, you finding your faith. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I, I was just a regular teenager, you know, even though I was in Catholic schools, I was, you know, I was still struggling with a lot of the same things that teenagers struggle with. And uh, um, one of the things was, uh, you know, when I was playing music, I just felt, you know, I was very happy. I was very ADD growing up, but if you yeah. put a guitar in my hands, I could spend hours playing guitar. So, yeah. um, you know, I played a lot of music, and then, you know, I was approached by uh, a youth minister who said, hey, you know, if you play guitar, would you want to play guitar in the church group at mm-hmm. a neighboring parish? And, um, you know, I said, I said, yeah, that sounds cool. And then I basically, you know, that was my that was my very beginning of, of my faith journey with music because yeah. I realized how much I really enjoyed playing worship and how, how, how I guess I was inclined to do it. Mm-hmm. And over the next few years of high school and college, I really realized that I was happier when I was playing worship and I was bringing other people into the faith and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, they, they kind of went hand in hand, but it was really because of that invitation right. to start playing at a church service, at a Mass. Yeah, which is a really good lesson for youth ministers, priests, deacons, all of us in the church to invite, invite those young mm-hmm. people to come. Um, when, did you think that you were going to go and pursue music as a career? or did that come I think after? so, yeah. yeah. I think uh, when I was going into college, I kind of knew that I wanted to do music. Um, there was a part of me that was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll be... On the radio, I'll be, you know, that kind of music. I'll be rock and roll, like famous, whatever, you know? Right. Um, but then, you know, after a while, I realized that the more I played worship, the more I met people who were into worship. And the most talented people I met were, were you know, Christian, you know, musicians. And so it, it just really opened my eyes. One day, something just kind of clicked. And I said, you know, it, it isn't about being famous. It isn't about being, you know, rich. It isn't about being on MTV. It's about, like, I was given this gift, and it makes me happy. So yeah, why fight it? Of course. Now, so why? I don't know if this is a, a fair question, but why? <laughs> why do you do what you do? What's behind it? Like, what's your mission? That, that's a great question, <laughs> and there's there's a million different answers. Um, you know, I think the most practical answer is I'm putting food on the table <laughs> for yeah, my family, of course, and for my kids. You know, playing music and. What a blessing that is that I get to, you know, consider myself 
professional full-time musician. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the deeper question is, is you know, that's what I was created for. I was created, you know, to uh, to use music um, as a medium of worship, mm-hmm. to evangelize, to you know, really celebrate life. And as, as you know, as you mentioned, you know, I play you know different secular events. I do all kinds of all kinds of music. But really, when it comes back to it, there's a there's a yearning in people's soul to celebrate. And I think you know the reason that music is such a great medium is. We know that the angels are are singing in heaven, and so we know that music is on in heaven and on earth. Right. So we were created for music. We were created to have music around us. So I think whenever we can, you know, harness that medium and bring people into celebration of life, like that, that just that just builds me up so much. So, so yeah, that's so, that's a great question. Do, I've been asked do you before. mean sorry? Do you mean then that we are everyone is created for music, not just you specifically? The way God has created you for your your His plan for you. I think I think everybody, you know, if you were to ask anybody, do you like music? I think their answer would be yes. Yeah. They might not all like the same music, mm-hmm. but I think everybody likes music. And I and I really do feel like it's because, like I said, in in heaven we know through yeah. scripture, the angels are singing. Yeah. They never say the angels are dancing. They never say the angels are painting pictures. Yeah, that's true. The angels are singing. Yes. So I think to answer your question, absolutely. I yeah. think that there's something in us. Mm-hmm. that loves music. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I think I agree with you. So tell me about this new album. How How is it different from other other music you've uh, put out there in the past? It's um, it's very liturgical, which mm-hmm. is great. I think what I kind of wanted to do, and I think what World Library Publications um, agreed with me on, was we wanted to write something that we could hand to a you know music minister, choir director, and say, you know, this is, this is almost an entire mass right here. Yeah, you've got your your gathering songs. You've got a psalm on there. You've got mm-hmm. an Easter sequence. You've got offertory. You've got recessional. Um, it's almost like it's an entire mass. It's not quite. You know, it doesn't have all the, all the mass, mass parts, parts yeah. and and uh, everything. But um, hopefully, the next the next CD we do will will kind of complement this one in that respect. But um, I think that's kind of the the difference between this and just a collection of songs is that. As you listen to it, it's almost like you're you're actually listening through the mass. And so that's it, that's different in that you had never done what you would call a liturgical album in that sense before. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I've done a praise and worship album before, um, just songs that you know in my heart were just pouring out for praise and worship. But this one was very um, designed specifically um, for yeah for mass for 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 music ministers and for congregations. Yeah, and and I mean, I I know because even when I first saw the title, I mean, gathered in your name, I thought, oh, it's a great, great gathering song. And then we give them back to you, great offertory song. Yeah. And then at the end of the program, we're going to listen to "Let Us Go," which again is great, sending forth. Um, so absolutely, this is a, a great album for uh, for mass. Um, you describe on your website the and I mentioned it at the beginning that it's singable, danceable, pop rock music doesn't say it's liturgical so how do you see kind of where do you see those two coming together well you know like kind of like i said with um with the amount of different styles of of venues we play um we play churches we play youth rallies we play all that stuff we also play uh wedding receptions we play uh corporate events um so really when it comes to the website that's um that's kind of a way to draw people in right Um, i see but I think that even if you weren't, you know, if you weren't Christian and you started listening to our music, I think 
you would you would it would get you excited. It make you it's easily sung, it's easily movable, mm-hmm. it's all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of why that that description is there. But um, yeah, I think yeah, one of the one of the greatest you know ministries that I've that it happened by chance was you know I we we play like secular event. Let's say we're playing a pub or yeah. playing uh, somewhere, and somebody comes up to me and says. You know, the, the age-old question, what's your real job? Because for some reason, nobody believes that anybody can be a musician full-time. Yeah. So somebody says, what's your real job? And I say, um, you know, I play music full-time. I play here, there, and, mm-hmm. and everywhere, and I also play at church. Mm-hmm. And then people say, oh, really? What, you know, what church do you play at? And I can't tell you how many times on a Sunday I see people that I met at a secular show. Really? Come check out, check out Mass. In fact, there was even a couple that were dating and then ended up deciding getting married in the church yeah. after they came to mass a couple of times. So, um, I think, yeah, it's important going back to the website thing to, uh, to draw people in. Yeah. And that's, you know, singable, danceable, pop rock. That's at the very core. That's what we are. Absolutely. Go, to go back to what you said first about inviting people that we have to always be mm-hmm. in, invitational. I have a Salvation Army friend of mine who always says that, you know, why should the devil have all the good music? <laughs> oh, that's such a great quote. I yeah, love it that. is. It is. Now, just before you go, I wanted to ask one maybe last question. When you are doing these secular events, mm-hmm. do you, I'm not to say that you preach, but do you do you try to bring in some element of faith or evangelization into those settings, or does it depend? You know, I think yes and no. I think, uh, you know, we're called, we're called to live out our faith, um, even without words sometimes. And I think um, the joy that the gospel puts in our hearts is something that you live out and, mm-hmm. um, Again, those questions I feel like come to me very often in a secular setting. When right. People ask me, they say, "So, you know, what do you what do you do?" And they're intrigued because they know that there's something more yeah. than just me playing, you know, a bunch of cover songs Absolutely. at a bar. Yeah. So, so I think to answer your question, yes, but it's it's not. But, I'm not on the microphone necessarily preaching. Absolutely. But I think yeah. In my actions, I I I can kind of convey that. Well, it sounds like you're doing good work, Mikey. It's been really good uh, getting to know your music and to speaking to you today. Thank you very much well, for sharing. Well, thank you, Deacon yeah. Pedro. I appreciate it. That was Mikey uh, Needleman, a conversation that we just had. You can learn more about uh, him and about his band at their website, MikeyNeedleman.com. I'm going to put that link on our site so you can find it easily in case you can't figure out how to spell Needleman. Um, here now is Mikey Needleman with uh, that song that we mentioned, Let Us Go, from his new album, Your Ways. the day you have created for me to breathe, for me to make it count. I'm giving it all back to you. If it's your plan, I will accept it, for I was made, was made for greatness now. It's all such a beautiful truth. Let us go.
listening to Mikey Needleman with Let Us Go from his album Your Ways. This is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. You can find out more about us at saltandlighttv.org. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. We continue today with our series on marriage and family. Earlier this month, I spoke with Deacon Eustace Beausoleil and his wife, Gloria. Eustace and Gloria are from St. Lucia, and they spoke to me about their early days of marriage, as well as how they're doing now as grandparents. We are very much aware of the mistakes we made, especially with regard to parenting. Uh-huh. Um, because like I said before, um, I'm all about the kids. So when the children came, I mean, my, my focus of attention was clearly on the children. I mean, mm. this was it. I did everything with them, and mom was just sort of in the background, you know? Yeah. And I think that was a drastic mistake. Because and in, in that you were putting your children before your marriage. Yes, yes, And actually, yes. when we got together, my first daughter must have been about two, three years old. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. And Eustace was just in love with this yeah, little girl. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. So it's always been the children, yeah, the children, yeah, the children. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So there was no, no, the, the fact that she was Gloria's daughter from a previous marriage was not, didn't create a, a, a oh, stress. Oh, or oh I, f- I fell in love with her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I fell in love no, with her. No, it's yeah. never been a struggle. No. No. Okay. Yeah. Now, Gloria, since Eustace brought it up, so he was focusing on the children, mm-hmm. and he's admitted that that, maybe he was neglecting his marriage. How, what were you feeling at the time? Neglect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't exactly say it as bluntly as neglect. It wasn't neglect. It's just that if anyone knows Eustace, he's overkill when it comes to children. He spoils them. I've always been the disciplinarian. I guess taking after my father, things should be like this, like this. Right. So he was the good cop and you were the bad cop. That's That's right. That's right. To the point where my little daughter one day said to my son on the table, fix your legs. The wicked witch of the West is coming. (laughs) That's how they considered me, you know, the... So the, okay, so then did you, did you have that conversation at some point? How um, did you address? Well, we addressed it um, not directly with respect to talking to each other, mm-hmm. but like I said, we became aware of it and we are trying to, to correct it as we work through it, um, helping the engaged couples attend the marriage preparation right. course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you discovered it by yes, helping other yeah, couples? Yes, because basically um, we realized that the friendship we had was eroding. Uh-huh. because of my attention to the children mm-hmm. and I didn't get to know her or to spend time with her as much as I should have right and clearly that's a mistake one of the best advice I got and I got this before I was married and I think it's probably the same advice you give couples now right is that the greatest gift a father can give his children is to love, love their mother y- yes yes so the marriage yeah. comes first so you would agree with that yes as a matter of fact one of the very pertinent questions we have um, 
on the focus instrument dealing with the marriage preparation course, we asked the couples um, which would be your preference, your parenting skills or your marital relationship, which, which would you focus on more? And most of, the most of the couples, they clearly proudly say, oh, our parenting skills, you know, and of course, then we explain to them that that could be a, mm -hmm. a problem. Interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting, most of the couples I meet, it's the mother who focuses more on the kids mm -hmm. and, is, and, and mm -hmm. ne neglects, if I can use that word, the husband. Mm -hmm. But so it's interesting mm -hmm. to see the roles mm -hmm. reversed here. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk a little bit about your... So you were married, you had gone through a separation, mm -hmm. there had to be an annulment. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that process? Mm -hmm. and how painful painful it is painful yeah, for a lot yeah, of people it is painful yeah it is because although i have to admit that the sisters who really interviewed me during the time of the annulment mm -hmm. they were very kind and very accommodating and you know if you choked up at any time or was in yes. tears they would take a time out mm -hmm. and give you a cup of tea or something and bring you back into perspective, you know. Yeah. They were very, very accommodating, I must say, and this helped a lot. But it was a long process? Very long. Very, very it's long. a long process yeah. for the annulment. Uh, it was in the late 70s. It was the yeah. early 70s. Maybe just, yeah. just from a practical point of view, for people who are not familiar with the annulment process or for people who are hesitant about the annulment process, can you explain a little bit how not from a personal point of view, but just practically how it works? Well, why is it such a long process? Well, basically, I guess that the reason why you go through the annulment is because you, re you want to be in full communion with the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and uh, being divorced, obviously, um, according to the, 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 the um, canon law, we cannot practice, uh, we can't receive Holy Communion. Yes. And so um, the, the initial process would be approaching the priest and have him make the application on your behalf. Okay. And the priest would send the documents, um, signed documents down to the, ch the chancery office, to the, um, to the tribunal. To the tribunal. Mm -hmm. tribunal. And um, they would um, sort of contact the, um, the um, I guess, there is, uh, the person who's making the application would have to give information about his or her spouse, yes. address, mm -hmm. phone numbers, because the tribunal would have to contact that person. Right. And they also need to get in touch with other persons who have known the couple Witnesses. as a married right. couple Witnesses. for a number Witnesses. of years. Yeah. Absolutely. So they can attest to what to went whether, wrong. Whether it was Justified, the validity or yes. the invalidity of that, that uh, the, the, the marriage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had two witnesses. Yeah, yeah. I had to have two witnesses. Yeah. So that's a male who would have known my ex closely mm -hmm. and a female for a number of years, yeah. number of years. Yeah. 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 who knew me, yeah. Okay, Wh yeah. While, you, while, while you're married. While right. married. Not prior. Right, while exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just to recap a little bit, so the annulment process, it's a long process because you have to contact people who you may not be in contact with or in another country, so that's why it's drawn out, it's yes. painful because yeah. The circumstances are sometimes painful. And keep in mind, you also have to relive or to revisit the yeah, circumstances exactly. around, you know, the, you know, yeah. And then just as a note, so the, basically what the tribunal is doing is determining whether that marriage was valid at the time of consent. Amen. Yeah. yeah. And I, I presume in your case, it was considered mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the consent was not valid. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, so, so you're free to, granted, to, yeah. to, to marry again. Yeah. Now, you came into this marriage with a daughter. Mm -hmm. um, the daughter 
still, now that she's grown up and married, still lives with you, yeah. with yes. her family. That's right. What, what, how did that come about? And tell us a little bit about that, that dynamic, because that's uh, different too. Well, we are parents who, um, we, don't, we, um, we tend not to be in a hurry to get rid of our children. <laughs> okay? And our daughter lived in the U.S. for a while. Her husband is American. Yeah. And at one point, they were planning on coming back home. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I built an apartment downstairs. <laughs> there was apartment. a rec room, yeah, so I got busy. I got busy, and I, I, I built an apartment to accommodate them. And uh, they've been with us ever since. Good. Helps, helps with uh, keep you company. And, uh, <laughs> and, the, um, and the rationale behind that, too, is uh, the love I have for our first granddaughter. Yeah. I wanted to keep her as close to home as possible. So, so sorry, this daughter and her, they have one... Two have children. Two, two, two girls. Two children, two girls yeah. that yeah, are two living girls. with yes, you. Yes, yes. Yeah, one is yeah. 19 and the other is 12. 11. 12, yeah. Just, 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 just 12, 12, yeah. yeah, yeah, 12, yeah. 12. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So having, having some... I mean, essentially, she's your daughter, but it's a different family living in the same home as you, even That's though right. they have a separate apartment. That's not the same, so it doesn't it's seem so. Not it's the same case. home. It's yeah, the it's same the same home. family. They're yeah. upstairs yeah, all yeah, over the yeah, house. So how, now what if you're, you don't agree with your daughter's parenting or your son-in-law's parenting? No, oh, she is. She's, we're, she's, we're very respectful. Had that, no, no, well, she's an angel, I have yeah, to tell you. She beautiful. is a beautiful <laughs> yeah, daughter. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not just saying yeah. so because she's my daughter. She is patient kind, yeah. everything you, a man would want in a wife. Yeah. Good, when she disciplines her children, never yells. Yeah. You wouldn't even hear her tone of voice. I swear to God, Eustace was supposed to have been her biological yeah. father. Yeah. She <laughs> is so gentle. I yeah. guess it's, they say children learn what they live. Yeah. Yeah. She disciplines her children. She will speak to the eldest yeah. one mm -hmm. and she will say, I'll give you up to 10. She'll go one, <laughs> two, till she gets to 10. But does that, how does that make you feel? Do, do you feel like, oh, just send her to room now? Sometimes, sometimes. And, yes. and of and course, there are times when our, <laughs> yeah. times when our eldest granddaughter, because um, she could be a bit manipulative, she likes to have her own way sometimes, and then she will try to have us override mom's decision. Oh, I mean, that, that does happen. Yes, of course. And um, there are occasions, I must admit, when I do go to battle for her. And I will sort yeah. of appeal to mom to be more lenient and to allow her the freedom, whatever, whatever. How does that go? It usually works out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's very, could, she's an older I, I find a way to sell it, you know, I find a way yeah. to sell it, and yeah, so yes. it works out, yeah. So you don't feel you're undermining your no, daughter's No, we've never had authority. that kind, no. 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 And she's no. very respectful of us, too. Mm -hmm. And her husband is, too. So that's yeah. where I, I, yeah. I will be speaking about the blessings. Yeah, we, we, we blessed that. The way. blessings yeah. that, you know, I have and I see through my children and my yeah. grandchildren. Well, let me put it this way, Deacon Pedro. It's almost as though, I shouldn't say it's almost as though, we do pray our children into their marriages, okay? Uh -huh. We do pray them into it. How, what okay? do you mean? I do pray for whichever spouse. God will be given to my children. Yeah, he did that from... Yeah. So you did that while they, when they were little? From yes, the, yes. Yeah, yes. From, I, from the I, I asked, did you I do that with them? Yeah, we no, pray as no, family no, no, sometimes. No, not with them. But, These are just flash but, prayers I but pray on. we also yeah. pray yeah, yeah, no, no, not with them. They don't know I'm doing this. So. Okay, so last question then. And I know you probably don't have to think about this a lot because 17 years doing marriage prep. What is the one advice that you would give a couple, a young couple that's considering marriage? Uh, I'm big on date night. Really? Date night. Date night. Once a week? Once a week, date yeah. night. So yeah. we have come to this 
Friday nights is usually our date night. Good. And sometimes, of course, we can hit a movie on a Tuesday because, mm -hmm. of course, you know, it's... It's cheaper. <laughs> so we do... No like kids. No <laughs> kids. Yeah, so yeah. we do a movie, most likely Good. on a Tuesday night. When did you start doing date nights? Is that something well, that was a struggle. That was a struggle. Oh, so yeah. I ha yeah, it was a yeah. struggle. And I mean, something And when the grandchildren came about, when too, that's it, it yeah. interrupts our date night. Because yeah. Friday night yeah. is, but we'll it's, get a call. Yeah, she's been pushing for it for the longest while. But yeah, not that I was hesitant, it's just to make the time and to, to commit, commit to it, to commit and to it. And that, yeah. that, that, that night doesn't have to mean go out to an elaborate no, dinner, no. get all dressed up. That night could be sometimes we walk on the yeah. broadwalk next but to us by to the water. The two of us only. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Go yes. to Tim Hortons, yes. Swiss Chalet, you know, yeah. doesn't have to be anything significant. Yeah. So there we can share, you yeah. know. Yeah. And watching a movie at home is not a date night. There are always mm. people at the house. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So would you give the same advice or anything absolutely, else? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, um, respect for each other. Yeah. Total respect for each other. I think respect is a big piece. And also yeah. being my confident, he always was. Mm. And I, I must say that I've got the freedom to share with him openly, whether it's negative or positive. And he's very receptive, which is something that perhaps... Well, I, do, I, I do pout a little once in a while. <laughs> no, no, no. Most husbands yes, do. Yes, yes. <laughs> but he takes it on the chin. And yeah. that, 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 that's just a virtue. He's got that, that yeah. very incredible virtue of patience. Patience so, is yes, very important. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. That was a conversation I had with Deacon Eustace Boussoulet and his wife Gloria earlier this year. You can watch my full conversation with Eustace and Gloria by going to saltandlighttv.org slash perspectives. And that's also where you can watch other interviews I've done on marriage and family and consecrated life. Here now from Teze is Per Kruchen from their album Ubi Caritas.
That was Per Cruchem from the Teze community's Ubi Caritas. As France prepared to enter the Second World War, Roger Schutz, a 25-year-old Swiss man inspired by the gospel ideals of reconciliation and fraternity, sought to establish a community of men where kindness of heart and simplicity would be at the center of everything. What started out as a small group of brothers living out the gospel in the remote French village of Taizé has today blossomed into a vibrant ecumenical monastic community where more than 100,000 pilgrims visit each year. Taizé is well known for their music, but it is much more. Brother Emile, a Canadian with the community, was back home last year, and I had the chance to speak with him. Brother Emile, thank you for staying 10 minutes longer just so that you could talk to me. It's been, I think it's been four years since we last spoke, but I know you come to Canada every year, and I'm sure you go to other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, can I say promoting the message of Taizé? Is that a fair assessment? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe just to be. <laughs> which is, <laughs> with which people. Maybe we, it's the message of Taizé. That is the mes- <laughs> okay, wait, okay, so wait. So for people who are hearing Taizé, and I know people have seen the word and I've heard them say, what is Taiz? Yeah. What is, what is Taizé? What's the name of the village? Tiny village. Only about in 120 people live there in France. In France. In Burgundy. Uh-huh. Uh, wine area, Burgundy. Yeah. And, uh, and it's where, where someone started a community. It's called the community of Taizé because of the village. So the village is Taizé. And you'll tell me who started this <laughs> in, a, in a moment. Uh, but this community has grown. Yes. And now everything that's associated to that community, primarily the music, and we'll talk about that, is referred to as Taizé. Yes. Music or the Taizé community? Right. Correct. Yes, the community is the bro- brothers of Taizé, because we're about 100 brothers. And then you have what goes on in the village of Taizé w- with the gatherings that we started with right. young people that go on practically throughout the year now, okay. uh, from at least from February to November. There are maybe 100,000 people who come every year to spend a week. Spend okay. a week so the community was started by Brother Roger? Yep, the founder is Brother Roger. Uh, he was Swiss-born. Uh-huh. At the age of 25, he decided to leave Switzerland. Uh, much to the dismay of his family, because uh, why leave a country that is neutral to go to a country that is at war? Why, why make your life so more difficult? So this was during the Second World War? 1940, the war had started just yeah. a few months earlier, and he felt that he had to go to a country that where there was difficulty, strife, and, and to welcome refugees. He, he had heard about the political mm-hmm. refugees, he had heard about the Jews that were escaping, and so right. he, he opened his home. Uh, that he had just bought in Taizé, 1940, he opened it to political refugees. Okay, and then that was the beginning of what now is this huge community of 100 brothers? Yes, yes, that was the beginning, the very humble beginnings of Taizé, and he was alone for two years, then, then three brothers came, then there were seven, ten, twelve, and, and then young people started coming. Right, and it's an ecumenical community, so Bro- Roger was not Catholic. Yes, the beginning, uh, Brother Roger uh, was from the, a, a Protestant family, a church of the... Calvinist church. His father was a pastor. Okay. He had heard many sermons, many, many sermons. He didn't want to hear more sermons. <laughs> right. he, wanted, he wanted life to speak about, uh-huh. about, about joy, about hope, about trust. And, yeah. and that's what pushed him to, to start a community Okay, because his attraction to life. Right. Now, you are Canadian. Yes. When did you join? I joined in 1976. Okay. Uh, I'd been in 1974 for a week and then went back for a year as a volunteer, and then at the end of that year, I entered the community. So what attracted you about Taizé? Well, when I was very young, I was invited to go to a Taizé weekend in Canada. I'm from northern Ontario, right? and I had no idea what Taizé was, but someone said, you'll be interested, go. And so I went, and, and uh, I think 
what touched me most deeply was something that has to do with the resurrection, really, the resurrection of Christ. Because I, I, I think that entered my soul very deeply that joy is not just a feeling. It's not, there's, mm -hmm. Christians are not about an artificial kind of optimism, mm -hmm. but there's a foundation to joy. And that Christ is risen from the dead. Death has been conquered. That, that was something that entered me at a very young age. And I realized this is, this is the most important thing I've ever experienced. I've got to go further. So you experienced that at that Teze gathering when you were... 17. 17 years old. Yeah. Uh, presumably that was, it was a, a, a gathering like they have them now with the music? Yes, there were, it wasn't exactly the same kind of music, but it, it, there, was, there was prayer with song and mm -hmm. uh, silence, and, and there was discussion and what friendship. What do you think it was about that meeting that made you think about the resurrection? I that, don't know. I remember waking up, being realizing that there is something greater than death. That there is something, and that, that entered me very deep. And so I was happy because later on I was able to study some of the theology of the resurrection mm -hmm. and work on that quite a lot. But I realized that entered my heart at a very young age and, and determined really the rest of the path I was going to take. So in summary of the question, what, what, how did that genre of music, if you can call it a genre, how did it develop? I think that Tese music was created, composed, partly because we were very frustrated, mm -hmm. Brother Roger in particular, with the, oh. with the, impossi the impossibility of praying with people who have, don't speak French, who don't, who don't know what the singing of the Psalms is about, or the okay. singing of hymns, and we have to find something easier. And so that's how we created these very short songs that are known as the songs of Teze. Now they were maybe sometimes in the form of a round, or, a, right. or what's called a nostinato, something you could repeat over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And, uh, when we had one or two of those songs, we realized we can pray in a slightly different way now with people. People will participate in a few minutes or seconds even, they will learn the melody. So even if they don't speak the language? They don't speak the language, there are only three words, Veni Sancti Spiritus, yes. or there's Yubi Latte Deo, two yes, words, no? Yes, la, uh, la, la, yeah, and so, yeah. And so you, 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 you can participate in the prayer. And, and, and that was the aim, I think, is that people be participants in the prayer. And at the same time, there was also in, in our community, largely because of Brother Roger, I think, uh, a desire to be honest with yeah. the human condition, not to have music that would be, ah, it's easy to have faith, it's easy to be trust in God. We know it's not like that. We know there's a struggle often to trust. We, mm -hmm. we have fears, we have doubts. And Brother Roger wanted music that would be honest with what yeah. we are about as human beings. Know that we go by night, we don't see, we don't have visions, we don't see God, we don't see our hope. We grope, we move, we inch mm -hmm. our way forward, we, we start over again, we fall, we get up. Uh, faith is like that, isn't it? And, and, and so, so he wanted a music often in the minor key. There are a few joyful songs yeah, in the major yeah, yeah. key, but off, many are in the minor key. And I think people connect with that. They say, oh yes, my life of faith is like that. No, I'm also, yeah. I, I don't have visions, I don't see, I, I need to grope also. And, and so they felt that they could pray with just yeah, the music helped them. We go by night. We sing those, those words of St. John of the Cross. Yeah. De noche yes. in Spanish. De noche iremos de noche. We yeah. go by night mm -hmm. without vision. Uh, we sing lots of words about trusting, about being thankful, about things that maybe don't come to us spontaneously all the time. Was Brother Roger the composer, or was it, how did they get written? Well, Brother Roger is the one who really asked one of our brothers, who was a medical doctor, actually, oh, who, yeah. who had a passion for music, to, to think of, of ways of, of praying with people. And he approached a composer in Paris, Jacques Berthier, 
was an okay. organist. Who was an organist for the Jesuits in Paris. Okay, because Jacques. So I know Jacques Berthier because his name is something. He's a, his name is on the music. Credited, yes, yes. yes so yes. he's not a member of the community. He was never a member of the community, but he was a great. He was a great composer. He died in the nineties, but he was a great composer. And uh, I see. And he accepted a search. He was not only a great composer, but a very humble one. So uh -huh. he would compose something. And if it didn't work right with the with the assembly with the crowd, we would send it back, and he would rewrite it so that the chord be easier, mm -hmm. or people not make a mistake at the end. And right. for every song, there's a file, a thick file really? uh, uh, of searching. And that's why he always wanted the name of the brother who had contacted him to be on the books, also uh, Brother Robert, because he said it's a collaboration. Okay. It's right. a collaboration. So what is it about music? Because, and I don't know this is specific to Taizé music, but definitely we see it in Taizé music, that is conducive to prayer or to a mystical experience. I think the texts are very well chosen. Okay. Of scripture, there, there are not many words. Uh, I mentioned the, the music often. The, there's a quality. It's a simple music, but there's a quality to yes. the music. You know, yes, there's sure. a, there Berthier. Now the brothers are composing, but there, there, there's a quality, I think, to the music, even if it's simple and uh, it's, 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 it is musical. And uh, there's an atmosphere also. No, there's an atmosphere. There's the icons, semi-darkness. Mm -hmm. Even the bodily position in Taizé, there are no pews. People are sitting on the floor. Right, so there's a whole experience. There's a, there's a, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, and so you, you're, yeah, you're, all your senses, the early Christians knew that, that all our senses are made to participate in the prayer. Right. Well, we listen, but we also are called to see. There was the incense. And the candles. Even touching sometimes the icon. So it's, 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 it, we have to come out of an intellectual approach to prayer. No, it has to involve our whole being, uh -huh. our whole body, uh, our hearts. The heart is... Is a tricky word, you know. Sometimes people say heart is, you know, our feelings. But in the Bible, the heart is. The German bishops translated it very well in the Catechism for Adults. They said, "The heart is the real me." Mm. And I like that definition very much. You know? mm -hmm. It's not often that you're called to be who you really are. Right. You know, you're sometimes called to pretend you're this or that, or but to 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 realize God wants me to be me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an enormous discovery you know, when, when, right. when prayer makes that possible, that God is really interested in you. He has time for you as a person. And, and I think the music also somehow communicates that. that you, many people don't know they can sing. Yes. They think you know, singing is for people who have trained voices, who have studied music. And at Taizé, I can sing. Everybody can sing. I had sing. no idea I could sing. And you yes. can become part of it. And, and yes. your voice is, is called to be heard. And it's beautiful. Um, so you mentioned briefly that there are conferences or gatherings that happen all year round now. So anyone can go. When you were a young man, you went for a week. Is that an experience that anyone can participate in? Practically throughout the year, there are people uh, more from, from February, March to November. Mm -hmm. uh, so we get huge crowds, like in the summer, it's three to 5,000 people. Every week we're spending wow. a week at Taizé. From around the world. From around the world. And, and we have gatherings outside of Taizé, always after Christmas. There's the big European meeting. Yes. Two months ago, yeah, we were in Strasbourg yeah. for yeah. 30,000 people yes. for five days. And, uh, and sometimes on other continents, we'll be in Texas at the end of uh, uh, April. We'll have uh, two gatherings, one in Dallas, April this one year, in Houston, 2014. 2014. Yeah. And then March, we'll be in Austin, Texas, just oh, before that. So, so, yes, anyone can come, but the focus uh, for these gatherings outside Taizé is, most, outside Taizé is mostly for the 18 to 35-year-old, okay. 17, 17, 18 to 35. And then we have people over 35 can come for a week to Taizé itself. There are quite a number who come. Quite a number of okay, people. I see. Um, so if people want to find out more, they can just go to the website, taizé.fr. Yes, taizé.fr, and they can even see a short video, and they can even register yes. on, online. Now it's become much easier. Okay, Brother Emil, that's all the time we have, but thank you. 
It's been good to see you. I knew you were coming, and of course, when I saw you, I was surprised. I don't know why, because I knew you were coming. Um, but I'm glad that we had a, a chance to speak today and, and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. It's good to see you again. That was a conversation I had with Brother Emile of Taizé when he was in Canada last year. You can learn more about Taizé at taizé.fr, and that's T-A-I-Z, or Z-E, T-A-I-Z-E, dot F-R. You can also watch full interviews with Brother Emile on Witness with Father Rosica and on Catholic Focus with Sheridan Sanders, both on demand at saltandlighttv.org and also on Roku. Here now is the Teze community with Ubi Caritas, Deus Ibi Est, from their album, Ubi Caritas. We're listening to the Teze community with Ubi Caritas Deus Ibi Est from their album Ubi Caritas. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. You can learn more at our website, saltandlighttv.org, and connect with me at Deacon Pedro GM. Thank you for listening.